It is a delight indeed to be with you folks here at Pippin. I've looked forward to this meeting since the invitation was tendered to me some time ago. I have known many of you for several years, uh, but sometimes uh, I remember faces very well, but names elude my memory on occasion. So if I have to ask you your name two or three times, don't be, uh, uh, well, don't feel slighted by that. I will try to get as many names down as I can before the meeting is over, but I am delighted to be here. I am confused sometimes with an older preacher by the name of Edward Anderson who preached throughout this area many years ago. I grew up listening to him preach. We'd tune him in on WHUB or WLIV. And uh, I was telling someone earlier when I preached at Monterey, there were a couple of nice ladies from Baxter, Tennessee, where he had preached, who came to services up there one night. And uh, one of the elders at Monterey said, you need to go and speak to those people because uh, they've come to see you. Well, I walked around in front of them. They were sitting about where uh, uh, the babies are here on the front. And... I extended my hand, and they both just opened their mouths in utter amazement when I told them I was Edward Anderson. And they never said a word. They did not say, how are you doing? Nice to meet you or anything. They, did, they couldn't say anything. They were so shocked. So I just walked back to the back and then got up and preached later. And after the services that night, as uh, I was back there shaking everybody out, as we preachers sometimes do, uh, they came back that way. And when they got within a few steps of me, we made eye contact. I began smiling. They began smiling. They said, uh, do you know what we've done? I said, yeah, you came to hear the other Edward Anderson. And uh, they said, well, it was a good lesson anyway, so <laughs> I appreciated that. But at any rate, we are sometimes confused. He was about the age of my dad, and, uh, but I did know him and appreciated him immensely, he and his lovely wife, Dorcas. We've sent our bulletin to them before he died for many years and still send it to her address. At any rate, they were wonderful people, and it is an honor indeed to be confused with him. I am from Jackson County. Many of you knew James Paul Anderson. He is my oldest brother, and uh, we lost him a few years ago. In fact, uh, Gina and her two boys are with us this morning, and uh, we're delighted to have them here. Some have come from Sycamore and maybe other places to visit with us after their services, and we're delighted you're here, and we do hope that this gospel meeting will serve as an evangelistic effort, so invite your friends, neighbors, relatives, kin folks, enemies, just invite everybody that you can, the people that you go to school with, work with, the next-door neighbor, uh, whomever. Just invite those people to come and be with us in this series of meetings. There are so many things I'd like to say and talk about, but let's get to the task at hand. Notice, if you will, in that reading for, from a few moments ago, from James chapter 4, James said, Go to now, you that say, Today or tomorrow. We will go into such a city, continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain, whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. Two times he mentions tomorrow in that particular passage. We often read this passage at funerals, but there's a lot more to it than just a funeral message. James is called the book of common sense. It's called the gospel of common sense sometimes. He gets down to the brass tacks of living the Christian life. 
He reminds us that it is not enough to simply espouse faith in God or to claim faith in God. That faith must be demonstrated by the lives that we live, our works of obedience. A man is not justified by faith alone. Faith alone is dead, he says. It won't save you, but it must be accompanied by works that grow out of faith. The faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17 reminds us. But that faith is not to become staid and dead and, and just uh, inactive. It is to be vibrant. It is to be alive and is to continue to motivate us. Just as faith initially is produced by hearing the word of God, we must continue to read and study the Bible to have our faith replenished. And it's like throwing some more wood on the fire. Uh, where there's no wood, the fire goes out, uh, the wise man said. And so it is in reference to our faith. Many people's faith dies because they do not feed it. And that's one of the reasons that we need to be in Bible study classes, services like this, the reason we need to be involved in personal study at home, turn off the television, turn off all the other gadgetry that we have in our homes, and simply spend some time reading and studying the Bible. It'll refresh your soul. It'll build your faith. It will instill within you enthusiasm and a desire to do the will of God and to serve Him faithfully upon this earth. James says faith is practical. It is that which motivates us in our lives as Christians. It undergirds us. In fact, in Hebrews 11, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's that substance that holds us up. It's something that is not uh, fluid and fickle and all of that. It's something that is, has substance about it. When you build a house, you build it on a good foundation. And when you build a Christian life, you build it on faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith continues to come by hearing the Word of God. Even after we become Christians, that faith must continue to be supported by what God has said in His Word. But James says, too many people plan on what they're going to do tomorrow. I was listening to a radio talk show not too long ago. And it came to the end of the program. I think he went off the air like at 9 o'clock. And he, he mentioned that he had several callers still on hold. And he said, he apologized to them. And he said then, oh well, there's always tomorrow. And I thought, uh-uh. No, sir. Tomorrow does not always come. But he repeated it. Oh, well, there's always tomorrow. So many people live their lives counting on tomorrow coming. They seem assured. They seem certain that tomorrow is going to come. Is it true that, oh well, there's always tomorrow? James says, don't count on it. James reminds us in this passage of the brevity and the uncertainty of life. He says, what is life? What's your life? It's like a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I live really close to the Cumberland River. 
And some mornings, while everybody else is enjoying sunshine, we're enshrouded in fog. Sometimes I can drive about a half, well, less than a half a mile up to Highway 25, and the sun is shining. But I'm in the fog down there. But amazingly, if you can stand on a hill and watch the fog as it covers the Cumberland Valley, it's amazing. If you are doing something, you can turn around a few times and look again, and the fog is gone. It is said that in the land of Palestine, there was a mist, a fog that would cover the land. And when the sun came over the horizon, it just, it was gone. It's believed that James has that figure in mind when he's talking about life. That life is like that fog, that mist, that vapor that suddenly dissipates and disappears. It's there, then it's gone. And that's the way life is. The woman of Tekoa said we're like water poured out, spilt upon the ground, can't be taken up again. We're like a tale that is told. Life is swifter than a weaver's shuttle. So many figures in the Bible remind us that life is very brief. Very brief. Years ago, we had a man at Carthage who lived to be 97 years old. I, sometimes when I was visiting with him, I'd say, Uncle Oscar... How does it seem? Does it seem like you've lived a long time? And he'd almost always say, well, no, not really. And I'd think 90 years, 95 years, he was very alert and able to communicate up until he was about 96. He'd say, no, it doesn't seem like a long time at all. We'd talk about World War I, we'd talk about things that happened back in the early 1900s. He remembered those things. He could tell you the, uh, how big the snows were on a given day back in the 1920s and 30s. And I found those little trivial things quite interesting, to be honest about it. I enjoyed talking with him. But he would always say, a man that's 95, it doesn't seem like I've lived very long. Lady lived to be 107, I believe, died just a few days ago in Jackson County. Often thought about her. Did it seem like a long time? My own mother's 93. She doesn't think it's been very long. Life is very brief at its longest. Just a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. James said, be careful about counting on tomorrow because tomorrow has a way of not coming. And you'll notice that this fellow, he has the fellow saying, well, I'm going to go into a city and continue there a year and buy and sell. He's not making plans for just tomorrow. He's making plans for a year ahead. He's planning on what he was going to do. I'm going to buy and sell and get gain. You know, no recession is going to come. No depression is going to come. I'm going to make some money. So many people live life based on that philosophy. Oh, there's nothing wrong with making plans for the future as long as we don't leave the Lord out. He said what you ought to say is if the Lord will. We'll do thus and so. 
So many times today we leave that condition out of it, don't we? Here's what I'm going to do. Not me and the Lord. Uh, I'm going to do. Just watch me. Here's what I am going to do. James said, be careful about making plans for tomorrow. Because you don't really know what's going to happen tomorrow. He talks about their rejoicing in their boastings. And he says that's evil. To a person that knows to do good. He doesn't insert this in this verse. But it's sort of implied. To that person who knows to do good today. And doesn't do it. To him it is sin. If he puts it off till tomorrow. He's missing the mark. He is sinning. He is failing to take advantage of the opportunities that he has now. Be careful about saying, oh, well, there's always tomorrow. There used to be a man that we knew that people would joke about it. and he, he, His philosophy was, uh, no need doing today what you can put off to do tomorrow. Of course, he was just having some fun with that. He didn't really live by that philosophy. But there are a lot of people who do. Have you thought about in the Bible some examples of people for whom tomorrow did not come? Genesis 6 begins the story of the flood. Some believe that it had never rained on the earth up until the time of the flood. That the earth was just watered by that mist that the book of Genesis tells us about. But as God observed the earth, he saw that people were very wicked. They were extremely corrupt. The thoughts and the imaginations of their hearts were evil continually, the record says. Kind of reminds you of today, doesn't it? Seems like there are multitudes of people who are only thinking about something evil and how they can do something that is even more evil and corrupt. There was a man mentioned to me many years ago, the Bible says that like begets like, kind produces kind. He said sin only produces more sin. That's true. You know, evil men and seducers shall do what? Wax worse and worse. Deceiving and being deceived, Paul said. So sin will beget sin. Just look at the example of David. Deception, lying, murder, adultery. Sin snowballs. And as it starts down the slope, down the hill, it gains speed, momentum, and is more difficult to stop all the time. That's the nature of sin. That's the reason, as Barney Fife says, it must be nipped in the bud. You need to stop it before it gets any worse. Repent of it. Turn from it. Ask God's forgiveness and ask Him to help you to have the strength not to do that thing over and over and over. God viewed the earth, saw all the wickedness, but He also saw the righteousness of Noah. He took note of Noah. And the Genesis account says that He remembered him even when He was in the ark. He didn't forget Noah. And he brought him safely to that other shore, to a new world that had been cleansed. But think about those people that lived in Noah's day. What were they doing? Well, the Bible tells us that they were just going on living as usual. 
day after day after day. They were doing the same things they'd always done, just participating in evil and wicked things. Right up until the time Noah went into the ark, that's what they continued to do. They were married and giving in marriage. They were just living life. No doubt many saying, oh, well, there's always tomorrow. But then it began to rain. And it rained, and it rained, and it, we think it's rained a lot around here lately. Nothing compared to the way it rained in the flood. Not only were the windows of heaven open, the fountains of the deep were broken open, uh, probably signifying that great earthquakes occurred. And the people who have studied the floors of the ocean say that no doubt that happened. I mean, it was a catastrophe, the likes of which... Man had never known and never seen from a weather standpoint since. A flood of waters covered all the earth. Well, I know some question that. But in every major civilization that's ever existed, there's always a story of a universal flood. And people who have studied the strata of the earth say that Nearly everywhere you dig, there is a level that they say could only be caused by a flood. The soil and makeup of it and so on, I don't, I'm not a, an authority on anything like that. But I've read those writers who say, you know, there's pretty well universal agreement that there was a universal flood, just like the Bible says there was. Now, those people don't make the Bible true. The Bible is true in spite of what men may say or do. And we can depend upon it. But think about those people saying, oh, well, there's always tomorrow. But suddenly there was no more tomorrow. You can see people getting on their housetops, climbing the highest mountains, climbing the trees on top of the highest mountain. But that still didn't save them or deliver well, it'll stop rising tomorrow. But it didn't. They were saying, oh, well, there's always tomorrow. <laughs> Not so. A little bit further over in the book of Genesis, Genesis 18, 19, story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know the story. Lot had pitched his tent toward Sodom, and I was reading about that just last night, and Another mistake that he made is when those men told Lot and his family to get out, the Bible says that Lot lingered. He lingered. Why would he want to stay any longer in such a place? He's already lost his sons-in-law. He was to them as one who mocked. They made fun of him. They weren't believing anything that he said about God going to destroy these wicked cities. The angels had come in. The wicked man of Sodom had desired them. Many years ago, when I lived in Indiana, there was a television show on where I believe it was I believe it was a man. I couldn't can't remember right off whether it was a man or a woman. But anyway, they were disagreeing with what the Genesis account says and talking about uh, gay agenda and homosexuality and things like that. And they said uh, the besetting sin of Sodom was not homosexuality. It was a lack of hospitality. Well, Lot had just been very hospitable to those men who had come. 
And so they had enjoyed the hospitality of Sodom because Lot had been very hospitable to them. It's evident to all of us that those evil men had something else in mind in reference to the angels who had come. And those angels had to deliver Lot himself from the hands of those wicked men because they said, you know, we'll just take you and set about to do it. But the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had so long persisted in that sin and other sins. Run references on Sodom and Gomorrah. You'll find that they were guilty of a lot of other things than just that sin. At any rate, God said, no more tomorrows. Abraham had pleaded for the cities and taken God all the way down to ten righteous people. If ten righteous people can be found there, will you spare them? And God said, I'll do it. Somebody said, Abraham, don't hush now. Keep talking. Ask him if he'll do it for five. Even ask him if he'll do it for one. But no doubt Abraham thought, surely there will be ten righteous souls in Sodom. <coughs> Not to be. Only Lot, his wife, and their two daughters left the city. And then Lot's wife looked back, and Jesus warns us, remember Lot's wife. No man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Be careful about looking back. Be careful about lingering. Be careful about pitching your tent toward Sodom, parents. And young people, be careful about that. Make decisions that are wise. Makes a great deal of difference where you pitch your tent and what direction you take. At any rate, those people of Sodom and Gomorrah no doubt said, oh, well, there's always tomorrow. No, there's not always a tomorrow. Their tomorrow never came. The whole plain was destroyed. Those cities, Zoar was spared because... Lot didn't feel like he could make it all the way to the mountain. So Zoar was spared. But it's believed by many Bible scholars and commentators that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are buried beneath one end of the Dead Sea. No more tomorrows. No doubt they counted on it. The Egyptians, the Egyptian hosts that pursued the Israelites, just went out on a little military expedition. No big deal. Why, with all of our chariots and horses and so on, we'll be able to bring that nation of slaves back in just a little while. We'll have them back down here in Egypt and back in slavery before you know it. You know, and then we can get back to our daily routines, you know. There's always a tomorrow. Waters of the Red Sea parted. The children of Israel went across on dry land. The Egyptian host, Pharaoh's army, started across. Those waters came back together. And a little bit later on, they're washing up on the shores. No tomorrow. There's no telling how many times those same soldiers had engaged in similar military expeditions. They'd always come home. Probably the mightiest military force on the face of the globe at that time. There was no more tomorrows. 
Luke is one of my favorite writers. I like his two-volume study of the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Both written to Theophilus, who believed, oh, is believed by some to have been a, a powerful figure maybe within the Roman uh, Empire structure. At any rate, that's neither here nor there. He takes us through the life of Christ. He takes us through his death, burial, and resurrection. He talks about... Uh, the establishment of the church and the preaching of the gospel beginning in Jerusalem in the latter part of Luke chapter 24, Luke's account of the Great Commission. You pick up the book of Acts and he goes right on talking about how that Great Commission was fulfilled beginning at Jerusalem and then going all the way to Rome. But in the course of that discussion, Luke tells us about some individuals who said, oh, well, there's always tomorrow. Luke chapter 12, rich farmer, you remember the story, no doubt. He was the man that didn't think that he had enough barns to store his goods. He said, what am I going to do? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down those barns, build greater ones, and there I'll store all my goods that I've made this year. And uh, I'll say, soul, take thine ease. Notice that. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. He left off those words that we know, for tomorrow you die. He didn't say that. But notice what happened to him. The Lord said, thou fool. Why was he a fool? Because he forgot who he was. He forgot God. He forgot other people. One commentator said, what do you mean you have not anywhere to store your goods? You have the bosoms of widows. You have the bellies of orphans. You have the homes of the needy. You have all kinds of places to store your goods. If you go back and read that account, I believe in the King James Version anyway, that man used the personal pronouns, I, me, mine, mine, 11 times in that context. He was very selfish, self-centered, thought of no one else other than himself. He was planning on tomorrow. He was planning on taking it easy. He forgot that he was going to die sooner instead of later. Oh, well, there's always tomorrow. No, not really. About four chapters later, Luke 16, the really rich man, the one that was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. You remember him. There was a beggar that sat at his gate, was laid at his gate, really, indicating that he wasn't even able to, be, uh, to walk there, had to be carried there. That man just was oblivious to him. No indication he ever acknowledged him. Had all these fineries about him, but he thought only of himself. The Bible says that he was comfortable. Lazarus, on the other hand, was miserable. But there's a common denominator about life. Have you ever noticed that? Don't care how rich, how powerful, how well-known you are, you still die. Now, you may have a little bit better casket. You may have a little bit better or bigger tomb rock, but you'll still go to the silent city of the dead just like the poorest pauper in town. Death is a common denominator. 
Uh, you may think it's strange, but I enjoy walking in cemeteries, just reading the tombstones. I like epitaphs, like the one that said, Here I lie, no wonder I'm dead, because the wheel of a wagon ran over my head. Now, I don't know why anybody would put something like that on a tomb rock, but it, that's said to be in England. I didn't see it with my own eyes, but I've heard that it was there. But I enjoy reading the inscriptions. I enjoy looking at the dates of birth, dates of the death, and thinking about some of the things that that individual no doubt experienced in life. At any rate, you can't tell by looking at the stones how much money those people had, what kind of houses they lived in, what kind of clothes they wore, anything. Death is a common denominator. This rich man died, and Lazarus died. Both of them died. And then amazingly, their roles were reversed. There was a complete flip-flop that occurred. Do you notice what happened? The rich man who was so comfortable in life is now miserable. He said, I'm tormented in this flame. Looked far off and saw, Abra uh, saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. That's a statement that denotes that a Jew in Father Abraham's bosom was completely at rest. The one who was comfortable in life is tormented in death. The one who was tormented in life is comfortable in death. Friends, that tells you. Reminds all of us that you can be comfortable in this life. I had a man tell me one time, well, I'm not rich, but boy, I'm comfortable. An individual can be comfortable and still be condemned. Sometimes people will say, steeped in denominational theology and doctrine and so on, oh, well, preacher, I'm, I'm comfortable. Uh, don't put too much stock in that. You can be comfortable and still be condemned. Well, I'm just comfortable the way I am, preacher. Now, don't disturb me. Don't try to scare me. Don't try to get me to change. I'm comfortable. You may be comfortable, but you could be condemned. That's what the rich man in Luke 16 was. Do you think he ever thought, well, there's always tomorrow? No doubt he did. But finally, tomorrow never came. Oh, we could talk about others. There's Ananias and Sapphira, the unfaithful church members. They no doubt counted on another day. It didn't come. They both died the same day, carried out and buried by the same people. No fanfare, no big funeral, nothing like that. God will not tolerate sin among his people. He will not condone it. He does not endorse it. It doesn't make any difference how popular it is. Anything like that? God does not tolerate sin. Because he's a righteous God, he cannot ignore sin. Because righteousness and unrighteousness have no fellowship. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14. And then I think about Herod. Herod Agrippa I, I believe it was, that you know he had James beheaded, killed, and arrested Peter, and tried no doubt to kill others. But in Acts chapter 12... Didn't give God the glory. He was struck down. Powerful man from the great Herodian family, a descendant of Herod the Great.
this man did not see tomorrow. He may have been saying, oh, well, tomorrow I'm going to go to such and such a city and, and enjoy my palace there for a while. But tomorrow did not come. What if tomorrow doesn't come? What if tomorrow doesn't come? Do you want to be found in Christ? I do. Paul said in Philippians 3 verse 9, after talking about his conversion from Judaism uh, to become a disciple of the Lord, talked about all the things that he had going for him, and he counted those but dung or refuse. And uh, he said, you know, I let all of that go so I could be in Christ. I wanted to be found in him. If tomorrow never comes, I want to have served faithfully in the Lord's church, don't you? If tomorrow never comes, I want family and friends to know that I love them and to leave an example that they can follow. Paul said to the Corinthian brethren, Be you followers of me as I also am of Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful to know that your family will be encouraged to follow Christ because you have followed Christ. Fathers and mothers need to take that to heart. If you want what's best for your children, then you be the best that you can be before them. Children are going to pay more attention to what mom and dad do than anybody else. Now, later on in life, there's going to be considerable peer pressure. But mom and dad can provide a foundation to help hold their children up in the face of peer pressure. We sometimes talk about not yielding to negative peer pressure, but exerting positive peer pressure. That means that we're to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We're to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works. Not evil works, but good works. And be led to glorify the Father which is in heaven, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. We're to adorn the doctrine. Paul reminds us of the need to adorn. How can we adorn the doctrine? By making it practical in our lives and by demonstrating the world what the gospel of Christ is all about. The story is told of a fellow that having trouble selling seeds in his hardware store and somebody came up with a novel idea. They said instead of just having this rack here with all these packets of seeds why don't you demonstrate what those seeds will do? And so he built him a little box in his window, filled it with really good soil. It could get some sunlight. He watered it. He sowed the seeds there, and it wasn't very long until he had a beautiful flower garden right there in his store. And he put a little sign there in the window that said, if you want flowers like these, buy your seeds here. Guess what? He sold those seeds going and coming because he showed what the seeds could do. That's what Christians are supposed to do in reference to the gospel. We're supposed to demonstrate to the world what the gospel of Christ can do in the lives of people. And Lord willing, in the afternoon service, we're going to talk about that.
as we present a lesson entitled, These Are But Men. We'll see what God can do in the lives of mere men if we will but allow Him to do so. If there's no tomorrow, I want to, make, to have made a difference in the world, and I'm sure you do too. We will make a difference, either for good or for evil. Everybody has influence, just doesn't matter, it's, it's there, but it can be good or it can be evil. If tomorrow never comes, will you desire one more chance to become a Christian? If tomorrow never comes, would you desire one more opportunity to be restored to your first love? That could conceivably happen. I'm not trying to scare you with hypothetical situations that don't ever happen. Three young men just down the road from us lost their lives the other night in Trousdale County, Hartsville, Tennessee. Sixteen, I believe, was the oldest like 14 and 13, all freshmen in high school. Don't you imagine every one of those boys and their families had plans for tomorrow? I'll guarantee you every one of them did. I was young once, a long time ago, but I was young once. I remember the aspirations that we had. But sometimes tomorrow does not come. Opportunity is such a fleeting thing. Two men in the book of Acts had opportunities. Agrippa and Felix, you remember them? One of them was almost persuaded to become a Christian. The other one trembled at the preaching of God's word. I've seen people do both. I've had people say, well, I'm almost ready to become a Christian. I've seen others tremble, literally shaking at the preaching of God's word. They never did anything about it. One of them had two years of opportunity to become a Christian. Two years. He heard the apostle Paul preach the gospel for two years. And as far as we know, he never obeyed. He had his last day, and one day, tomorrow, never came. He'll stand before God to be judged just like you and I will. Don't count on tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. If you've never been baptized into Christ, you have that opportunity this very hour. If you need to be restored to Christ, you have that opportunity this very hour. You may never have another. So won't you come if you're subject while we stand and sing. <laughs>